Hello and welcome to the Marion Direct, the podcast that breaks down the news for Marion students by Marion students. I'm your host, Miguel Spalding-Price. And I'm Sean Efron. The situation we're here to talk about today is a very messy one. It's controversial. Lots of people have strong opinions. What we're here to talk about today, if you haven't heard about it, is the war between the Gaza Strip, a Palestinian territory, and Israel. This topic is incredibly complicated, and lots of people tend to have strong feelings and opinions, either for one side or the other. Our goal today is to try and take a step back from that and provide as objective a look as we can, and convey just how this situation got so messy and so complicated. Because it didn't just start on October 7th with the rockets launched by Hamas. This has been going on for nearly 100 years, and can largely be traced back to the way Britain handled the territory way back during the end of World War I. Because at the end of World War I, Britain was in control of the area we consider Israel and Palestine today, and promised that territory to both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Neither side liked the other, and Britain decided the best way to deal with this situation was to put them both in that territory and make them share. This didn't exactly go well. No, um, so Britain puts these two ethnicities that have historically already disliked each other in the same space, says get along. What happens is before the state of Israel becomes an independently created state, and this is still British Palestine, Palestinian and Israeli militias start to fight, and this escalates a great deal. Eventually, in response to the Palestinian Arab militias, the Israeli militias begin to take on an organized offensive which involves pushing out a nearly a million Palestinian Arabs from the territory, the grand majority of them. Some left willingly, a lot were forced or compelled by the Hebrew militias. There's a lot of debate over what exactly happened here. If you ask uh, most Palestinians or Arabs, they will say this was an ethnic cleansing. If you ask most Israeli Jews, they will say this was, most of these people were just asked to leave and they did so willingly, according to the official sort of nationalist narrative. The situation's complicated. There is no side that has its hands abundantly clean, but the only thing clear is that the Israelis did push the majority of the Palestinian Arabs out of this territory. Then, in 1948, the State of Israel is created. Uh, So, in 1948, when Israel forms, after already having had a civil war in the region, which Britain basically just kind of stepped back from, the British did not want to get between these two ethnic groups trying to kill each other, Israel's formed, and then almost immediately... Egypt and Syria attack. They try to invade uh, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, really. And eventually, the Israelis push them out after about 10 months. The state of Israel actually ends up taking a lot of the territory that was meant for a sort of Arab state for the Palestinian state. This leaves a very long grudge, which culminates... In a war in 1967, where Israel this time preemptively attacks Egypt and Syria in response to potentially threatening military maneuvers. This is when Israel officially occupies the Gaza Strip and the area known as the West Bank. Essentially, the two areas that if you hear people talking about Palestine now, that they tend to be talking about. Ever since then, Israel has been in control of these two territories, but that hasn't exactly been something the Arab states have liked. As six years after this 1967 war, there was another war, the Yom Kippur War, where 
essentially a whole bunch of the Arab states, most notably Egypt and Syria, decided, hey, the best time to attack a religious state is when they're having holy festivals, especially one focused on forgiveness, where you ask forgiveness for everything you've done wrong, because nobody's going to be ready to defend their own territory during that. That said, who actually won the war is a little bit up in the air. There weren't really any major territory shifts, but Israel ended up doing a really good job defending itself due to the fact that by this time it was already being backed by the United States. So Israel had the military equipment and technology that the United States had at the time. So for the most part, yeah, Israel considers this its victory. Egypt holds this as a victory because they lost the Sinai territory in 67 and as of the uh, sort of negotiations after the war, they were given back the Sinai territory. And this is when we have the Camp David Accords in about 79 with the Love Peace negotiations, which lead to a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel and helps start to resolve things, but it doesn't really fix the whole issue of a lot of Palestinians in the area wanting understandably self-government. This is where the situation gets really, really complicated. Because while Israel officially, unofficially, whatever, occupies both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Essentially, they're occupied territories that have been militarily occupied. The They essentially run themselves, but Israel's military just stands in and makes sure that you know Israel's in charge here. The Palestinians really didn't like that, to say the least, because they were effectively being told, hey, you guys really have no authority here. We're the big guys in charge, and we're going to kick you down whenever we feel like it. Being military-occupied is never a good situation. Militaries are not known for being kind or generous to the people that they are occupying, they're also not known for being the most cognizant about the war crimes they commit because elective punishment is officially a war crime. What ends up happening with this sort of split um, is that angry over this sort of uh, uncertainty of Palestinian self-government because in 1990, sorry, in 1993, there was a uh, sort of mediation between the Israelis and the Palestinians after some more violent conflict that allowed self-government of the West Bank and Gaza, and Israel was told to withdraw. But still, there's more frustration as the years go by over Israel's control of these regions. There's a couple of things called intifadas, which were basically violent uprisings by the Palestinians. In about uh, 02, the Israelis construct the wall around the West Bank to block it off to prevent attacks, and this just makes things even more messy. But where things get interesting is about 2006, when a uh, relatively uh, new organization known as Hamas wins the Palestinian parliamentary elections in 2006. Before Hamas rose to power, the authorities of Palestine and essentially its governing body were a party known as Fatah. They favored diplomatic negotiations over armed resistance against Israel, and they didn't really have a whole ton of opposition. In 2006, however, was the first time that they had really noticeable opposition by the group known as Hamas. This name may sound familiar because it's the group that now is in control over the Gaza Strip. And they have been in control over the Gaza Strip since 2006 when they, in the first round of elections the Gaza Strip has ever seen, won a landslide victory. 
This is also notably the only round of elections that the Gaza Strip and Palestine as a whole have seen. So while Hamas won in 2006, they haven't had any elections since, and their official status as the government of the Gaza Strip is slightly contested as a result. I'm also very careful to say that they are the government of the Gaza Strip here because this is also the time when the Gaza Strip and the West Bank start to split apart from each other. Because while Fatah had been the sole representative of both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, the collective area known as Palestine, this after the 2006 win of Hamas in the elections, Fatah essentially just leaves the Gaza Strip and starts effectively governing just the West Bank. Because while Hamas had support in the Gaza Strip, they didn't have nearly as much support in the West Bank. So the West Bank becomes the seat of the Palestinians who want to diplomatically negotiate and becomes the area that most foreign countries recognize as Palestine as being the governmental body of Palestine. They're called the Palestinian Authority and even the UN recognizes them. However, the Gaza Strip remained under the control of Hamas, which favors armed rebellion and has officially been considered a terrorist organization by a large number of countries, most notably the United States, Britain, and France. In uh, 2020, things were beginning to look hopeful for the potentiality of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. This is because of some normalization of relations between Israel and several Arab nations that before them wouldn't have wanted to recognize Israel at all, these being the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. However, the Palestinians, both Fatah and Hamas, object to this, and they objected to a lot of the talks that were continuing to proceed over what should happen in this territory. How does one maintain this sort of two-state solution, as it's called? What makes it even more significant is ever since Hamas's election victory in 2006, Israel has used that as an excuse to largely blockade the Gaza Strip. Essentially, Israel controls everything that goes in and out of the Gaza Strip, including fuel, water, and food. And they've used the violent uprisings that Hamas likes to use as, as an excuse to tighten these restrictions ever more. However, Israel doesn't want to stop doing this, and they don't want to stop increasing the restrictions put against the Gaza Strip and normalizing relations with other Arab countries, who are the primary backers of the organization Hamas, would threaten Hamas's ability to gain support from its Arab allies and would decrease their ability to pressure Israel to change what it's doing to the Gaza Strip. This sort of culminates with what's going on now. The danger to Hamas of losing this sort of tension between the Arab nations and Israel, the danger to Hamas of a potential normalization of the region, the danger, most of all, of a diplomatic solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is too much. An organization like Hamas fundamentally depends on conflict, and it fundamentally depends on violent conflict. Particularly because, as we said, there are two groups in Palestine, Fatah and Hamas. Fatah is the globally recognized group. They favor diplomatic uh, negotiation. Hamas has depended on violence to try and get its way ever since it won in 2006. Essentially, this means, well, terrorist attacks. They have been extremely well known over these last nearly 20 years of just 
launching rockets and missiles into Israeli territory. They've also become less well-known for sending militants into Israeli territory as well. Usually, it's just rocket strikes that Israel has a really high, hard time responding to because Hamas is really well integrated in terms of its infrastructure, in terms of its command personnel with the innocent civilians of the Gaza Strip. It's really hard to do anything against Hamas without doing something collectively against Gaza. Hamas for some time was seen as a relatively disorganized group. Most of their home-built, as it were, weapons, their bombs, their personally designed missiles were primitive at best. However, they have enjoyed the support of groups such as Hezbollah and Iran since their conception. They have enjoyed especially equipment and training from Iran, and I believe that we have seen exactly what that culminated in. If we compare how Hamas has been over the last 15 years or so, They've launched roughly 2,000 rockets in total into Israeli territory, killed roughly 300 Israeli civilians. And they've had roughly 75 to 100 days of official war between Hamas and Israel. They've only managed to kill 300 people in total over these last 15 years. Their efforts have been largely the efforts of a terrorist group who's disjointed. They don't really have a strong organization or ability to man attacks that actually have lasting influence. But that's all changed because on October 7th, they launched more rockets into Israeli territory than they have launched in the past 15 years in just a single day. On top of that, they performed a coordinated breach of one of the most secure borders on this planet. For context, the Israeli border with the Gaza Strip has multiple layers of fences and walls and guard towers and a consistent patrol. However, the Hamas militants who crossed the border were able to breach it efficiently and quickly using RPGs, breaching charges, construction equipment, and even hang gliders. Oh yeah, this entire border wall wasn't just breached in one, one way, in one place. It was breached all along the border between the Gaza Strip and Israel. As Sean mentioned, there has been an incredible number of ways that they've breached this fencing and guard. They've just driven straight through with motorcycles. They've had powered hang gliders that they rode across the wall on. And it's just shown a level of sophistication, of timing, and most importantly, of secrecy than anyone expected from Hamas. The coordination, the training, can lead to a lot of speculation. Many people are speculating that this attack was even ordered by Iran. We are not going to comment on that. We can't say what did and didn't happen. What can be said is that its impact is undeniable. Because... This small militant organization has just caused the largest diplomatic and international incident in the Middle East in the last 50 years. A lot of that is due to the fact that they've killed 300 civilians over the past 15 years, but in just four days, they've managed to kill 1,200 Israelis, mostly civilians, due to the fact that their rockets went into civilian areas and their insurgents have been primarily targeting Israeli civilians. The most stark example of this arises both from their actions in the villages and towns of southern Israel and at an event known as the Supernova Music Festival. The Supernova was an Israeli Lollapalooza. It was a massive event. Hundreds of people were in attendance. A group of Hamas militants entered this, armed with Russian AK pattern rifles, and began to spray rounds into the crowd. Over 200 people were killed at this music festival, uh, several were kidnapped. Dash cam footage from some of the cars parked at the event have 
has actually shown the brutality and the mechanistic efficiency with which this attack was coordinated. In villages, uh, Hamas militants went from house to house, entering, killing everyone inside, taking some hostages, and leaving. As of right now, the Israeli army has only just been able to actually go through these villages and start confirming just how many are dead, just how many are kidnapped, just how many, well, didn't make it. Because there have still been armed Hamas gunmen in these villages preventing the army from getting into them and actually just doing the casualty count. That said, while Hamas has been incredibly violent and ruthlessly efficient at targeting civilians, Israel has been doing largely the same, albeit in a slightly different way. While Hamas has been launching rockets into Israeli territory, Israel has been launching air bombardments into the Gaza Strip. While these air bombardments are meant to target Hamas facilities, and Israel has been noted to frequently provide warning, hundreds of civilians have died. These numbers are, of course, confirmed by the Gaza Strip authorities, which are run by Hamas. However, it is certain that hundreds of civilians have died and many have been injured. Houses have been destroyed. Because of the way that Hamas is embedded into this territory, any airstrike runs a severe risk of injuring or killing civilians or damaging civilian property and infrastructure. Not to mention that as a response to Hamas, Israel has tightened their blockade on the Gaza Strip. As in the past, while they have controlled the water, the food, the electricity, the fuel that's gone into the Gaza Strip, now they've officially declared that nothing's getting through until Hamas either surrenders or dies. They're not going to be letting anything go through to the 2.3 million people who live in the Gaza Strip. This is, as you may be able to guess, a war crime, which is kind of the situation we're being put in, where both sides are committing acts that really aren't the greatest. And a lot of innocent civilians are being caught in between Israel and Hamas at this moment in time. Both Egypt, the United States, and the UN are currently attempting to pressure Israel to allow humanitarian aid into the territory and to allow civilians out. Yesterday, October the 10th, the Gaza-Egypt border, which Egypt has been allowing civilians to slowly trickle through, was closed due to a, an Israeli missile striking one of the gates. That border has reopened thanks to talks between the Israelis and the Egyptians. However, the state of Gaza itself is critical. Hospitals are running out of supplies, civilians are unable to eat, Fridges, of course, having failed, meaning that people cannot preserve their food. The humanitarian disaster that will arise from this is undeniable. And what makes it worse is neither side shows signs of wanting to back down. Hamas has already declared that these attacks are as a result of Israel trying to normalize relations with Arab nations. And they're going to be investing as much as they can into preventing Israel from making peace in the region for the first time in a long, long time. Israel, on the other hand, is not going to stop until Hamas is gone, because with over 1,200 dead as of the counts from this morning, that's a lot of people, especially for a small nation like Israel. If the proportional amount of people dead in Israel were applied to the United States, right now would be between 50 and 100,000 Americans dead. To put into context, 9-11 killed 2,977 people. So Israel is feeling a lot of pain. 
And everyone in Israel knows someone who's been involved in someone who's died. The most tentative part of the situation for Israel will be the 150 or more people being held hostage by Hamas. Several of these are international citizens, including Americans. But this contributes nonetheless to the uncertainty and instability of the situation. It's really, really hard to do anything effectively against just Hamas, as we've already mentioned. They are well integrated into the civilians of the Gaza Strip. They have massive networks of resistance tunnels. And, well, they just like building infrastructure right by civilian population centers. So you can't just target Hamas which means there's no good way to try and rescue hostages as well. As of right now, I don't believe anyone knows exactly where the hostages are being kept, and there's no good way to send in actual forces to try and recover the hostages either. So it looks like negotiation is what Hamas is going for, and that's the only option available to any country with hostages right now. This situation really reflects the overall pattern of Arab-Israeli relations in the area known as Israel and Palestine. Attacks, reprisals, brutality on both sides, and ultimately a continued escalation that only serves to harm civilians. At the direct, we are trying to keep neutral. We do not intend to take sides. But if there is a side that we take, it would be that of the civilians who are going to suffer grievously from this. Neither Hamas nor Israel is properly weighing the lives of the innocents who are getting caught in the crossfire into account. That, at very least, is something that we can agree on. In the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, no one is without blood on their hands. No one is without some guilt. There is a very grave danger that in the reprisal against Hamas, Israel will, in fact, escalate the situation and that this situation will continue to destabilize. In fact, that is the objective of Hamas, to allow the situation to continue to remain unstable, to allow the flux. However, it is also undeniable that Hamas's actions are not those of resistance. They are not those of an organization devoted to the freedom of the Palestinian people. They are fundamentally terrorist acts, the targeting of civilians intentionally. Where this situation goes from here, we have no idea. It's still escalating there's still so much that has yet to be revealed, and there are still so many complexities that we haven't even had the time to touch on in this episode. But there is one thing that is clear, and that is that this situation is probably going to get worse before it gets better. And we at the Marion Direct will be here to cover whatever happens as a result. This is Miguel Spotting Price. This is Sean Efron. Signing off for now. Mm-hmm.